we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm director of the center and your host. We're going to be talking today about public charge, which is sort of an old-timey phrase, but that's what exists in the law. And what it means is that immigrants or prospective immigrants are supposed to be able to support themselves, that we're supposed to not take in people who are going to become a burden on the taxpayer. It's a kind of self-evident, obvious thing. Of course, that's not what you want. It's been a requirement in federal law, at least theoretically, since the late 1800s when the first federal immigration laws were passed. But it's actually the first principle, literally the first principle of immigration law in the United States because the first public charge requirement was passed in colonial Massachusetts in the 1600s, literally just a few years after the Pilgrims established Boston. The idea that newcomers should be able to carry their own weight is literally the starting point of U.S. immigration policy. And our guest today will talk about some of the more recent developments, not necessarily 17th century Massachusetts, but Congress legislated on this issue to try to tighten up the existing requirements back in the 1990s. Clinton administration kind of came up with their interpretation of what that meant. President Trump tried to tighten it up further to sort of make it more like what people imagine a requirement like this should be. Anyway, so and it's been in the courts. Some of it is kind of inside baseball-y, but it really is important because this goes to the heart of what immigration is supposed to be about. I mean, if we're importing people who can't feed their own children without being bailed out by the taxpayer, maybe we ought to be importing other people since there is, in effect, unlimited demand for immigration to the United States. So maybe we should be a little choosier in whom we allow to actually come here so that they benefit the pre-existing population of the United States and not cost us. So here to talk about this whole public charge issue and the developments over the past couple of decades is Rob Law. He's been on the show before. I actually forget his title, he can tell us, but he's an analyst here at the center, former director of policy at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is the part of Homeland Security that actually deals with this stuff. It's kind of where the rubber meets the road in this public charge requirement. So he's uniquely qualified to talk to us about what the situation is now and how we got here. So, Rob, thanks for joining us. And if you could kind of start us with the background, I guess maybe the 1996 law. It seems to me that's where the current story really kind of starts. Absolutely, Mark. Thanks for having me here. And, you know, just like you said at the outset, you know, the first public charge law, 1882, 
First federal law. First federal law, correct. Not to, again, <laughs> I'm, I'm lacking in the uh, the Massachusetts historian background expertise, but the 1882 federal law just said any person unable to take care of himself or herself without becoming a public charge, that those folks were excludable. But I guess this has been a, a thing of Congress for basically from the outset of our country. Congress doesn't do a very good job of explaining what they mean in the legislation that they pass. They say you, you can't become a public charge, but they don't say what that means. Right. Some people were turned away at Ellis Island because they were public charges, right? I mean, so this wasn't something that was just nominal, but had no effect. It had effect. It was inconsistent because it was basically up to whatever examiner was there. You know, how much money do you have in your pockets? How healthy and able-bodied do you look? Things like that. Interesting. And so as, you know, we move forward into the 1990s, having consistency in the application obviously makes a lot of sense. Right. And, and that's sort of where... Even for the immigrants themselves, in some sense, so you know what yardstick is being used. To exactly, judge exactly. And so that's where you had two major pieces of legislation passed in 1996 that both kind of speak to each other and speak to this general principle of the role of our immigration laws and the ability of immigrants, new immigrants, to obtain taxpayer-funded benefits, basically welfare. The first being the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, that it was basically the welfare reform. And within that law, it was a real concerted effort for Congress to sort of discourage dependency on, on welfare, and it made immigrants have to wait at least five years before becoming eligible for certain benefits. Of course, there were exemptions for humanitarian cases, refugees, asylees, they could access that stuff immediately. But in addition to that legislation, you had the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. And that, again, really honed in on the immigrant self-sufficiency. It required an affidavit of support, which we've written about that it's kind of like a contract between a sponsor of an immigrant and the United States government that says, I'm going to be on the hook for this new immigrant. I will ensure that they're able to live a lifestyle at least 125% of the federal poverty level. And that affidavits of support, they existed before, it's just that they weren't legally enforceable. Exactly. Yeah, it was just meaningless papers. And this actually did have that legal enforceability hook um, to it. And so with these two major pieces of legislation, making the issue of immigrants, eligibility for admissibility, and just welfare generally as a construct, the Clinton administration in 1999 put forward their attempt to define public charge. And they did it sort of in an interesting fashion. The first thing that they did was they published a notice of proposed rulemaking or an NPRM. And that's your typical executive branch action where there's a gap in the law. You use the regulatory process. You put out a proposal, you take feedback from the public, and then you finalize the rule. So this wasn't even a like fully cooked rule. This was kind of like the first draft or kind of thing. Exactly. Right. Exactly. They're just throwing it out there. Hey, based off of the data that we have available and what we think these laws mean, this is what we're proposing to define public charge as. But at the same time that they put out the proposed rule in 1999, they also drafted a memorandum, so just a policy document, that used the exact same definition. And it's kind of, for those of us that have worked 
at USCIS or, you know, if you're in the immigration law world, it's kind of been shorthanded known as the Pearson memo. Pearson being the, the last name of the bureaucrat who had the honor of right. penning the, the memo that obviously had a lot of hands involved in the process. And the definition for both that proposed rule and, and the Pearson memo policy document is that an alien is inadmissible for likely becoming a public charge if they are primarily dependent on the government for subsistence as demonstrated by either one, the receipt of public cash assistance for income maintenance, or two, institutionalization for long-term care at government expense. And there's really a couple of key aspects of how you interpret that definition. The first being the primarily dependent, which essentially, if you're using percentage numbers, we're talking 50.1%. That's a lot of welfare use, but that's the standard. And then the key thing within the two elements of it is that this is cash welfare only, not non-cash welfare. And so what that means is that under the standard, an alien could utilize an unlimited amount of non-cash welfare and not be considered inadmissible as a public charge. So basically, they don't use the words here, but you would kind of be considered self-supporting if you were on food stamps got Medicaid, lived in public housing, had free school lunch and free school breakfast and free school dinner. I mean, D.C., they have dinner, too, for kids, but didn't get an actual check for a dollar amount. You would still somehow magically be considered self-sufficient. Exactly. And, and that's really quite a departure from the original construct of our federal immigration principles. And so then you fast forward to the Trump administration and before you get there, you recognize that the Clinton administration, they never finalized this, this regulation. So the NPRM just kind of was left out there to float. And the policy document, again, same definition, that was the standard that was being applied by the INS and then subsequently USCIS. So the memo was for the staff, for them to decide how to define public charge when they're interviewing immigrants. Exactly. Yes. And so then during the Trump administration, there was a new proposed rule that came out that, let's say, took a, a much deeper look at the historical background of public charge, immigrant self-sufficiency as an underlying principle of our immigration laws, and got rid of the distinction between cash and non-cash welfare. And it was complex, but using a totality of the circumstances test, which basically means look at all of the factors, positive and negative, was the alien likely to use any welfare benefits within 12 months over a 36-month period? This is a prospective analysis. It did look at past welfare use, if it was recent, as well as the likelihood that an alien would require, whether it's income assistance, housing vouchers, food stamps, anything along those lines. So if you used food stamps for two months when you lost your jobs and then you got another job and didn't use food stamps anymore, it basically that wouldn't count because it was, like you said, 12 months over a period of 36 months. Is that right? Right. And it didn't have to be 12 consecutive months. So those two months would count towards the total. But I mean, but, if that's all yeah. you did in three years, you're yeah, not that's... considered to be a public charge. Exactly. And then also with that, if you took multiple benefits in a single month, that would count as two, three, four, whatever right. the case may be. And so, you know, following the rulemaking process as, as required under the Administrative Procedure Act, 
there was substantial public feedback. There's a lot of interested voice on the issue. I forget the number, but it was well over 300,000 comments that came in. It was a record for DHS, Department of Homeland Security. And I mean, I'm pretty sure it was an engineered campaign, in other words, by the anti-borders people to generate as many comments as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And despite all of those obstacles, the data was sound and DHS, led by USCIS, did actually finalize this regulation. So did everything that they're required to do in the rulemaking process. And yet that's not the standard today because it was first blocked on procedural grounds in the courts. In the courts. It takes one federal judge in a sympathetic in jurisdiction. Northern California, probably. Northern California, Chicago, Illinois, Maryland even. And that worked its way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court struck that down and said, no, this, this is an appropriate use of the APA, the rulemaking process. This injunction, this nationwide injunction, which is sort of the legal jargon for preventing something from happening or maintaining the status quo, says you, you've got to allow DHS to go forward with this. So it turns on for a very short period of time. And then you have another lawsuit that challenged the rule, um, sort of what they say on the merits, the substance of the rule, that somehow this interpretation is unlawful, inconsistent with the law, which, as we've noted, does not define public charge. It just provides some factors that must be taken into account. But it was really a law that was structured to give the federal executive branch the ability to put the parameters on it through, through rulemaking. Well, as the lawfare that existed throughout the Trump administration with pretty much every policy on the immigration side dragged this out long enough that 2020 election happens, Joe Biden becomes the new president, and with this litigation still going on on the merits, the Biden administration just says, you know what, we are not going to defend this. Now, I understand they don't like it from a policy perspective, but the way the APA is supposed to work is that if you go through the, the long game of making a final regulation that forces another administration to do their own separate rulemaking. To undo. To undo it, to amend it. Exactly. You can't just give it up immediately, which is why policies are sort of your quicker hits, but you know they can be shredded at any moment. This is supposed to have some more longevity and teeth. But the Biden administration was able to say, we're not going to defend the case. And so therefore, they effectively conceded its illegality. Was there any option of an outside person coming in and defending the government's case? Because that happens sometimes in some cases. It does. And it's my understanding that several organizations did attempt to what's called intervene, basically step in. And the courts refused to allow that. And I'm not exactly sure what that justification was, because as you've mentioned, this is not uncommon, especially when you have changes in administrations who disagree with the underlying philosophy or policy. But there's a difference between a substantive battle and a sort of procedural right. one. And so it's just been a real tortured history of public charge and trying to get anything beyond what's you know, still known as the Pearson memo as being the standard. So that is, as of right now, that is still the standard. So where was the lawsuit or lawsuits on the merits specifically, how far did that get and what were the claims of the plaintiffs? So that was a, I believe that was in Chicago, 
federal district court didn't even make it to the court of appeals. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. Yeah, because the procedural battles dragged on for over a year and a half. Those went to the various circuit courts and then eventually to the Supreme Court. But the one on the merits, I believe it was twofold. One, there was, of course, the question of was the various secretaries that sort of Trump had leading DHS, but were not Senate confirmed. Oh, I see. Was, was, that is a kind of process thing in yeah, that case. Were they lawfully serving in those capacities? But then there was another aspect of it that basically just said that the definition used, you know, requiring a look at both cash and non-cash over like 12, considering 12 months within a 36-month period as just being completely inconsistent with law. And so that was the claim that was raised based off of the history of public charge. It doesn't seem like that would have been a legal winner, but Mm -hmm. we'll never know because through some legal, I'd say, trickery, it would seem that the Biden administration was able to undo a final regulation in the quickest possible way, which is just allowing it to disappear under the guise that it was illegal. But nothing other than one, frankly, random judge saying as much has now set you know, a nationwide policy on, on the issue. So now USCIS is back to the Clinton era phony baloney rule where food stamps don't count as welfare, basically. I mean, to put it in a kind of brief fashion. Exactly, exactly. And primarily dependence. So, you know, again, you can get up to 50% of cash and again, unlimited non-cash welfare, and you're still going to be admissible. Uh, Considered you know, self-sufficient, exactly. basically, which yep. is ludicrous. Is there a possibility of suing over this memo? Congress passed legislation back 25 years ago now, and rather than follow through with a full rulemaking process, they just wrote a memo. Is the memo itself potentially subject to court challenge because it doesn't fulfill Congress's intent? You know, that's certainly a a possibility. There was not really any conversation on that front for, it seems like, the longest time. It kind of has been conceded that operating something as significant as a public charge inadmissibility determination via a memo uh, is good enough. But you know, we're kind of in a new era of lawfare where everything gets challenged in the courts. And given that there has been a number of other immigration law cases recently that show the harm to the state taxpayers, whether it's DACA or other immigration issues, that that is a harm to a state in a locality. Which means they would be able to potentially, and that would potentially sue. Exactly. And that would give them what's called standing or a legal requirement to sue, not just some person in the public saying, I don't think you did this. You know, right. This policy memo is not substantive enough that Americans going to get shot down. But it's proven that governors and these attorneys general have been able to establish standing because of the fiscal harm that immigration policy clearly does have on, on their jurisdictions. One of the interesting things, the affidavit of support idea always interested me. And for, you know, people who don't follow the issue, it seems like it makes sense. Well, you have a sponsor and the sponsor says, you know, they'll cover for you if you use welfare. So, you know, what's the problem? If they end up using welfare, then it's on you. The the taxpayer isn't going to be out any money. But even when it's made legally enforceable, as Congress did, like you said, in 96, it's still not enforced. Enforceable is different from actually being enforced because the people who do it, or at least the people who would 
initiate any such actions are state and local welfare employees. They're, let's just say that's a demographic that's not going to be real zealous about protecting taxpayer interests. And there's one story about that that I've always found interesting is that Mayor Bloomberg, at the end, Michael Bloomberg in New York City, at the end of his administration, actually put his people on that. And they wrote letters to sponsors of people who were using welfare. And they said, look, here's the bill. You owe us this money. You signed this contract. You know, what are you thinking? You owe us this much money. They actually collected significant, several million dollars. But that was the end of administration. And then de Blasio took over, obviously a very different perspective, and they literally mailed the money back to the sponsors. So, you know, it seems to me the kind of thing that we're talking about here where we're defining what public charge is at the front end to sort of keep people from moving here who would likely use welfare is just the only way to do it. Because once you let people in, if they end up using welfare, there's not, I mean, as a practical matter, not theoretically debating it in a dorm room during sophomore year, but in the real world, practically, there's nothing you can do to stop that. Exactly. Once, you know, once an alien's here and becomes eligible for a benefit and they start receiving it, yeah, you know, that's, unless circumstances improve and they, you know, make the choice to drop off, it, it seems like if you're eligible for it, you'll, you'll take it. You're going to get it. Yeah, exactly. And this is an interesting divide for libertarians, too, because there is a flavor of libertarian that says you shouldn't wall off America. You should wall off the welfare state so that immigrants, you know, you let in an unlimited number of immigrants because that's what they're for, but you just don't let them go on welfare. And in a sense, that was kind of what inspired to some degree parts of the 1996 laws that you referred to, where there were these limits, you know, you had to wait five years if you were a green card holder, that sort of thing. But it didn't work. I mean, we've actually written on this. Welfare use, the percentage of immigrants on welfare was right back where it was before 1986. I think within five years, Steve Camerata on our staff did a study of this. So really, the kind of public charge rules we're talking about it's the only way to go. Once you let in people likely to use welfare, it's kind of game over. A modern society isn't going to be capable of keeping those people off welfare. And as a realist, I mean, just as a practical matter, people don't want to see somebody dying on the steps of the emergency room just because they're not eligible for services. You know, that's just not, voters aren't going to go for that. I won't go for that. I want to live in a society where Emergency rooms have to take care of anybody who walks in, which is a legal requirement anyway. That's a separate question. But you can't sustain that if you're letting in lots of people who are going to be using welfare. Exactly. And then during the entire development of the public charge regulation under the Trump administration, the criticism that was thrown at it by those in Congress and the media was to call the rule a wealth test. This was some attempt to only allow wealthy immigrants into the country. And, and that's just frankly not true. I think our country has shown it as a, a vast history of admitting aliens who are not what you would consider to be wealthy by America's standards. Self-sufficiency is not about wealth. It's about living within your means. 
whatever level those means are. Some may be higher, more compatible to an average American. Some may be far lower. The question is, are you living within your means on your own accord? And that's all that the public charge analysis is. And it was frankly really just sloppy and lazy to call it something like a wealth test. But it, you know, I, it must have been uh, pulled well for, for those that opposed, That's what I was gonna say. That opposed the president. It wasn't so. sloppy or lazy. It was focus yeah. grouped. They came up with the term. Basically, it was the kind of thing, you know, this term like death tax that the uh, opponents of the inheritance tax use, which is a conservative thing. But the point is they got that phrase to stick. And wealth test, is a, they, were, they were trying to do the same thing. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when, especially over the past couple of years, you know, with the economic slowdown because of the COVID shutdown and everything, I remember reading a number of places, various advocacy groups bemoaning the fact that this or that group of immigrants wasn't using enough welfare. In other words, they weren't, you know, they were eligible for whatever level of benefits and they were, you know, not using it. And somehow that was a bad thing which is kind of the actual inverse. I mean, it's like your point is living within your means. There is this sense, especially among a lot of folks on the left, where welfare isn't something you should resort to as a last resort. An unpleasant alternative, but one that's the the other alternative is worse, that sort of thing. Rather, they see it as like getting a driver's license or whatever. In other words, it's just opportunity is there. So it's, it's bad if you don't use welfare, if you're eligible for it. And that's kind of a perverse sort of inversion of the American perspective on welfare, which is, in, in a sense, the public charge law reflects an older understanding of what welfare is supposed to be. You have to do it sometimes, but it's something you should try to get away from as quickly as you can. And that general perspective is not at all what the folks who run the welfare system now or the various interest groups around it, that's not how they view it at all. Right. Yeah. It's the difference between like a a reluctance to take it unless you you truly need it as that last resort, as opposed to here, here, we want to get you enrolled into as many of these programs as you can. Yeah, it's almost like they view it like tax deductions. When you file your returns, you're looking for every legitimate deduction you can. And that's fine. I do. Everybody does. It's a perfectly legitimate thing. But they view welfare in the same sense, is that it's almost like something wrong with you if you're not maxing out your use of programs that you're eligible for. And I, it, I always found that kind of jarring. And, but it does explain a lot of the politics, I think, around immigrant use of welfare. Yeah, exactly. It makes you wonder if uh, those advocates get paid by the, the alien that they add on to the, to the dole or something. Well, in the resettlement business, they kind of do. Contractors, they get paid by the head. And essentially, after three months, their main job is signing them up for welfare and then moving on to the next person. So, anyway, where it lies now, public charge rule is just sort of back to the old Clinton phony baloney rules. What now? So, there might be some change coming, but for now, it is the, this Clinton era policy of how to define a public charge. But recently, USCIS did publish a advance notice of proposed rulemaking, which isn't even a precursor step to an NPRM. And it is really a something that is very rarely used because 
the NPRM functions as your, your proposal, your draft. This is my idea of what this means. And then you have the proposed rule afterwards, which is like a second draft. And then the final draft is the one that incorporates the comments that people made. Right. So what you're saying is they did a pre-first draft. Exactly. It's basically, it, to me, the utilizing of an ANPRM, the Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, suggests that DHS doesn't actually have a vision as to how to define public charge. So they're basically asking the public uh, for help. Give crowdsourcing us, it. Crowdsourcing. Kind of. Give us your data. Give us your thoughts. Give us your philosophy. And then instead of us developing it ourselves and offering it up to the public, what do you public think of this? Get a response. It's now the public is kind of doing the work for the agency. And by public, they mean the advocacy group. Most likely, yeah. It seems to be a way to, I almost suggest that they're trying to, to launder the data sets of these groups that typically have some questionable formulation and methodology and, and sort of incorporate that as now it's government-backed data because there's a lack of, of government data on a lot of, a lot of the issues that touch on, on public charge. And this also kind of, I don't think passing the buck is the right word, but but they would be able to point to these public comments and say, look, we didn't come up with this. This was our responsiveness to the input from the public. In other words, it's all, like you said, it is sort of like laundering, but it's kind of having, I mean, they could do it themselves, I guess. In other words, I suppose they could hire people or they have, you know, they have plenty of lawyers there to come up with their own standard. But this way, in a sense, it's sort of shifting blame. It's like, well, it's not our standard. This is what the public demanded. And the public, you know, we gotta, we're just giving the public what they want. Exactly. And so there's a 60-day comment period for the public to chime in with whatever thoughts or data points that they may have. The ANPRM does provide a few questions that USCIS is specifically looking for you to respond to. Although, given how sort of informal this process is, it's, it's not a requirement that you address every single one of those. And, uh, you know, it would be appropriate to provide just your general thoughts on public charge. And that comment period is open through 11.59 p.m. Eastern on October 22nd. And so, I mean, public comment doesn't mean you have to be an advocacy group or an attorney or something. I mean, anybody can just do it, right? Correct. Anybody can do it. In fact, you don't even have to provide your name if you don't want to. You can right. post it as an anonymous person. And we'll have a link on the show notes about where to do that. I think there are other groups. I think Numbers USA, for instance, is sort of giving people some direction about what kind of items, what issues to touch on. We don't usually do that kind of thing, although you are preparing a comment, right? To yes, submit? I'm, I'm preparing uh, something that's a little bit more extensive that really does sure, touch sure. on everything. But right. for just anyone who's individually interested, they, it can just be very short, couple sentences. Right. You may have thoughts on you know, aspect A, but not really have anything about B through D. And that's perfectly fine as well. You only need to contribute to whatever part you, you feel like it. And it's pretty easy to use the website. And the agency does have to, I mean, you did this when you were over there. They do have to go through all of these comments, right? I mean, that's legally required. Somebody has to lay eyes on every single comment. Yep, exactly. And this will be used to sort of, if a proposed rule, you know, sort of that next draft um, comes out sometime down the road, you would expect that there should be a robust commentary about what is received during this comment period. And it could be, you know, we support 
the commenters from these institutional places, organizations that provided this data, you know, we disagree with commenters who said this, but it's still, it's part of the regulatory process. So the more that people participate in this process, the more that the agency has to address before they can go forward with a potential proposed rule and then potentially a, a new final rule down the road. So the deadline is when now? So the deadline is uh, 11.59 p.m. Eastern time on October 22nd. October 22nd, yeah. So there's still more than a month, month and a half almost, I guess, for people to comment. And, you know, stupid Twitter-style comments are not the kind of thing that's going to – I mean, even that they have to look at, but it seems to me something more constructive, even if it's just I think immigrants should be supporting themselves and we should be counting non-cash as well as cash benefits. Even that is a – seems would be, you know, that's one sentence would be a constructive comment, you know, if you're not going to be writing anything more specific than that. Absolutely. Because by even raising just that one point, it will require the agency to have commentary on the benefit or merits of cash versus non-cash welfare inclusion. So yeah, something, something like that can be very simple, but not just, uh, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the, the shock value stuff is yeah. not useful at yeah. all. It doesn't serve a, a valid purpose. But you got those 300,000 comments for the public charge rule. Were there a significant number of kind of stupid Twitter-ish kind of comments? Oh, oh yes, including <laughs> people who would attack certain administration officials by name, <laughs> um, those who didn't understand that some of the names on the, the proposed rule are just the career staffers that are just in charge of the regulatory movement process. And they say mean things about those folks as well. Ridiculous. Things that have absolutely nothing to do with the rule. So thankfully, if it's outside of the scope, those can be disregarded. Right. But like I said, even a one-sentence constructive comment that says food stamps should count, not just cash, itself is actual contribution Joe Public can make. Exactly. That, That goes a long way helping prevent what I, my concern would be a, a further watering down of the standard. And if they, the Biden administration does this in a regulatory fashion, my doubt is that a DeSantis administration would be able to just go to a court and say, we're not going to defend that. And they say, okay, back to Pearson. And then you start over. So it would take a much, uh, to jump much longer hoops. time right. uh, to get rid of a final rule if, if one does come out of the So process. you think that in doing this new rule, the Biden administration could water it down even more from what the Clinton people did? That's my concern. I could, be, I could be off base on that. But if the Clinton standard is what's currently ruling the day, and that's already rather permissive for mm-hmm. all the reasons we've talked about, putting a hat on of, of a Biden administration official, which is a scary vision to, to go down, says that even that is considered too much of a so-called barrier. That's like the buzzword that right. the Biden folks like to use, that they don't define it. So it doesn't mean anything. It's just anything that looks to be too hard to overcome. I think the only reason you pursue rulemaking under this administration's philosophy is because you view that standard as, as being too onerous. Interesting, because otherwise you just leave it the way you it just is leave now. leave it, yeah. and you can focus on doing something, something else. Right. Thanks, Rob Law, for filling us in on what's going on with this public charge immigrant welfare issue. And we'll almost certainly have you back on at some point because there's all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff going on. Rob wrote our... Biden's first 100 days report, 
And he also wrote a Biden second 100 days report, which is beyond just includes all kinds of things, not just public charge, but all the immigration type stuff. We'll see whether we have a Biden 300 days, uh, assuming there is a 300th day of the Biden administration. And we don't know. But if we do, Rob will be the one to write it. So thanks for coming in, Rob. And uh, we'll have you on again in the future. Thanks a lot, Mark. And finally, I wanted to talk about what is going on in Congress this week. Rob and I were talking about the public charge rule, and that's a regulatory thing where the executive agencies try to make rules and really, in a sense, almost make law. But ultimately, it's Congress that sets what the immigration law and all the other laws are supposed to be. And this week, the House Judiciary Committee approved the so-called budget reconciliation bill, or at least the immigration portions of it because it's not really a budget bill. It's, uh, they talk about $3.5 billion in spending. It's got all kinds of other things in it. It's only the immigration parts, obviously, that we focus on. And there's two main immigration effects, this vast bill, which is being pushed through via this reconciliation gimmick, which is a way of avoiding the filibuster in the Senate. And the two main things to know about it is, one, it would amnesty almost all illegal immigrants in the United States with no enforcement improvements or anything like that paired with it. And it would significantly increase legal immigration. We have posted a couple of pieces on it at CIS.org in our blog on these issues. The amnesty part of it, nobody's really sure how many people it would cover, because there are several categories of people that would get amnesty. The people who have DACA, and that's the way it's always talked about is DACA. There's only about 700,000 people with DACA, though, and yet this is 10 times or more greater than that. The DACA discussion is really just, I won't say a smokescreen, but it's sort of like a poster child for this larger amnesty. It also would include everybody who could be eligible for DACA or had DACA and doesn't. So that's a significant group of people. It includes everybody who has had TPS, temporary protected status, which the name itself is a misnomer. Nothing is permanent as a temporary refugee. But the biggest category would be so-called essential workers. And everybody's job is essential to himself, of course, but this is an advocacy group term cooked up by business lobbyists and potentially could cover most illegal immigrants in the labor force. This is why the estimates range from 8 million to 10 million people who would be covered by this. And I'm not sure what illegal alien would be excluded. And actually, that, that's an interesting point because Art Arthur, Andrew Arthur is the way he uses his name in print, but only his mother calls him Andrew, wrote a piece on this about how the amnesty portion of this reconciliation bill would actually enable people with criminal convictions to get green cards who would otherwise be barred from getting green cards or even should be deported. Art went into some detail on this. I won't go through all of the details here, but this is really an indication of how the goal of the people pushing the amnesty portion of the reconciliation bill basically want to legalize everybody regardless of their conduct or anything else. 
the other part, which Rob Law, he wrote a separate piece on the way that the immigration portions of this reconciliation bill would dramatically increase immigration. And there are a number of gimmicks and kind of sneaky ways they do it. One thing is called recapture of unused green cards, which is a misnomer. There's really no such thing, but it's become this term of art or a lobbyist term of art. And Rob's estimate is that it would probably result in an extra 800,000 green cards. And then there are other gimmicks in this reconciliation bill that would increase immigration, legal immigration, even more, but in ways that you really can't estimate now. So like the Gang of Eight bill back in 2013, 2014, for people who were following it, this bill amnesties most illegal immigrants and increases legal immigration. But unlike the Gang of Eight bill, the amnesty portions are actually looser in this one than the Gang of Eight bill. And there's not even the pretense of strengthening enforcement in order to try to limit future illegal immigration, because that's always been the implicit and usually explicit point of people advocating for amnesty, is that the illegal population is here because of our policy mistakes in the past. So let's regularize those people, give them amnesty, but fix the problems that created the illegal immigration in the first place, which is our frivolous and unserious approach to enforcing our immigration laws. The approach in the reconciliation bill, which the House Judiciary Committee approved this week and will be bouncing around probably for at least another several weeks, maybe month before Congress finally decides both houses on whether it's actually going to pass or it's going to fail, the immigration portions of it don't even pretend to try to fix future illegal immigration. In fact, it's almost certain it will increase future, not just legal immigration, but future illegal immigration, teeing up more amnesties in the future. And this is all being done with no hearings, no testimony, no nothing. It's, in fact, the version of the immigration sections of this bill were given to the members of the House Judiciary Committee literally just hours before the work session, so-called markup is the technical term, the work session where amendments are considered and all of them were voted down. And that's no way to make law of any kind. Certainly it's no way to make law in immigration, which is the arguably the second most complicated part of the U.S. Code after the tax law. This is Mark Krikorian thanking you for tuning in to Parsing Immigration Policy for this week. And next week, I believe we will have a special episode where you'll be able to hear our panel discussion, if you missed it earlier, on Afghan immigrants and refugees in the United States, both the ones who are already here as well as the ones who are coming. I hope you'll tune in for that and join us next week. Thank you.